So our Bible passage this evening is from the Gospel of John, uh, in chapter 6, which can be found on page 1070 in the Church Bibles. John's Gospel, uh, chapter 6, starting from verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten of the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, They got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Thanks, Pontus, uh, for reading that, and Rachel for praying for us as we come to look at it. Let me add my welcome if you're um, here visiting with us. Maybe this is your first time along to Christ Church. Maybe you've been coming along just in the past couple of weeks. We're going through as a church family. We're, we're looking at John's uh, gospel uh, together, and we're carrying on with that tonight. We also said, just to remind you, tonight we, we'd have, we'd do something a little bit different at the end. We'd have an opportunity for a Q&A, and we put some boxes out last week if you had any questions you want to put in. Nobody put any questions in, which Steve says means we must be explaining everything completely clearly that nobody has any questions. Um, we're still going to have a little opportunity for either, if you've got questions that you want to ask after the sermon, uh, we'll pause and we'll have some time for that. Or maybe there's a comment you want to make, something is, we've been going through John's gospel that's encouraged you or challenged you, you think it would be good to share. We'll just have, uh, we'll just have a moment when we can do that. Um, that's just to warn you about what's coming up later. I'm just going to adjust for the height difference in those who are at the front. Let me do that, Rachel. Uh, a guy I know, uh, Will, was having dinner with some uni friends uh, back in 2001, but he kept being interrupted. And the reason he was interrupted was because almost the entire Australian rugby team 
uh, wanted to shake his hand. That kind of thing doesn't happen to me very often. Don't know if it's ever happened to you. The entire Australian rugby team wants to shake your hand. Will loves rugby, so it was very flattering. And the reason it happened was, well, Australia were in the UK for some matches. Uh, They were meant to be having a warm-up game against Canada. Canada pulled out, so Will's uni, uh, that was Oxford, cheekily phoned the Australians and offered them a game. We'll give you a game. And they said yes. Everyone thought it was going to be uh, a thumping, but it was closer than expected. But Oxford were defending deep. Australia right on their try line when they dropped the ball right at Will's feet, and he picked up the ball right on his own try line. All the Australians standing around. What would you do if that was you? The ball's in your hand. I remember back to being small and doing anything when the ball came to me in any game. I was terrified. And so Will set off and he started running and the Australians started chasing and he kept running and he made it. He made it all the way to the halfway line with the Australians chasing him. Oxford students uh, were cheering what do you do at that point? You've made it to the halfway line. That's a result in my book. If you made it to the halfway line, but then he just kept running. <laughs> and the cheers grew louder, and the Australians kept chasing, and then it happened. He crossed the line. <laughs> he crossed the try line and put the ball down. A 20-year-old amateur rugby player student scored a try against one of the greatest teams in the world at the time. In rugby terms, he was a boy from nowhere, but he became the toast of the town. And that's why at dinner after the game, one by one, every one of the Australian players wanted to come up, tapped him on the shoulder, and shook his hand. It was really flattering. You can imagine it, can you? All these heroes that he said of his wanted to shake his hand. Now, rugby might not be your thing, but I guess you can imagine that kind of feeling Uh, at school or college, uh, wanting that kind of thing, uh, the respect and praise of friends. Or maybe it's at work with colleagues. Just love to be told, love to be told, you're great, you're great. Or what about even at church? Even if you're, you're someone who comes along to church here regularly, involved maybe in a ministry here, you have that feeling. I recognize that desire. And you will as well. And there's times when it's right, isn't it? There's times when it's right to commend each other, to say, well done, you've done great. But there's a time to be wary. There's a time to be wary when it kind of crosses over, when commending crosses over into just flattery. And I think you read John's Gospel, as we've been going through John's Gospel, you, you read John's Gospel, you discover Jesus doesn't do flattery. But he gives you something better instead. And let, let me show you what I mean in this passage that Pontus had just read for us. Look, Jesus doesn't do flattery. Just before our reading in chapter 6, the start of chapter 6, Jesus was, he'd been teaching a large crowd in a wilderness area. And they got to the point where there was no way to get food. And Jesus took someone's small packed lunch, five loaves, two fish, and fed everyone. John tells us there was 5,000 men there. So if you add in women and children, it's a huge number. Huge number there. And he, he fed them all with, with plenty left over. And the crowd knew it was a miracle. 
There's no disputing it. Uh, which prompts the comments in verse 14 that we had read to us. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Uh, they've spotted something really special about Jesus. And you read on into verse 15 and you get their mood. Uh, this is the guy we should follow. We should make him our king. Uh, and you understand what's going on. You think about it in today's term. They'd, they'd be thinking, look, this is the political leader we really want. This is the person to follow. This is the one who can sort out things for us. This is the YouTube guru we're going to tune into uh, week by week with the post come out. Whatever it is, you, you get what's happening. The boy from nowhere's become the toast of the town. And in many ways, it's very flattering. But Jesus doesn't do flattery. So verse 15. Jesus, knowing what, that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They want to make him king. And he withdraws. And you think, what's his problem? And the story at this point is we're reading it through from the crowd. It gets interrupted. Jesus crosses the lake, but we... We pick up the crowd again back in verse 25. If you look down to that, in, in verse 25, uh, the crowd, they catch up with Jesus. They've crossed over and they ask him how he got there. Just have a look at what he says. Verse 26. Jesus says this to them. I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. What's Jesus saying? Do you remember those magic eye pictures? Do you remember those kind of things that were popular a number of years back? You get magic eye pictures like this. And the kind of deal, it looks like confused blobs. In fact, Gideon checked with me to make sure that he said, that I think there's something wrong with the PowerPoint for tonight. But that's where it's meant to be. It looks like confused blobs, but there's, there's something else there. You know how they work. You're meant to, some of you are doing it just now. Uh, you, you're meant to let your eyes go out of focus, go a bit cross-eyed if you can, and you might just see it. Jesus said to these guys, look, when I fed you yesterday, that was a sign you were meant to see something. Did you get it? It was a shark, by the way, just in case you didn't see it. But Jesus says to the guys, uh, Jesus uh, says to these guys, when, what I showed you yesterday, that was a sign you were meant to see something, but you didn't see it. All you saw was a way to fill your tummies Perhaps you were thinking it was going to be a way to make money. Someone who can produce food like this. We could market that kind of stuff. And that's why you want me as king. Jesus is saying to them, you think you know who I am. And you think you know what you need. But you flatter yourselves way too much. Ouch. That's a tough thing to say, isn't it? People who've wanted to make him king. And he said to them, in effect, you flatter yourselves way too much. So you see what I mean? Jesus doesn't do flattery. See, what were they meant to see? Well, you think about what's going on in that feeding miracle. Jesus fed people in a miraculous way in a wilderness situation, and God had done something like that before. When his people had been slaves in Egypt, he'd come... And he'd rescued them. And as he took them through the wilderness, he fed them in a miraculous way with bread from heaven in the wilderness. You can go back and read about it in Exodus 16. 
But even after that rescue, you read on through the story of the Bible. They kept turning from God, kept losing his blessings. And instead of getting God's good life, they ended up throwing it all away. Throwing their lives in the rubbish bin, if you like. So God promised one day that he would come to rescue, not just from Egypt, but from always turning from him, from throwing life away. And when he rescued them, the promise was that they would get eternal life. All God's blessings. with Nothing to spoil it. My oldest son asked me just the other day, we were out for a walk, and he said, what, what's your favorite day? And I said, oh, I quite like Fridays, the end of the week. And he said, no, I don't mean your favorite day of the week. What's your favorite day? The day that's the favorite one. Uh, over the whole year, I, I don't know, or over your whole life. Can you think of a favorite day? Um, I thought, that's not a bad question. I started to think of ones. I didn't tell all of them, but I don't know if you can think of days that you just love or love. Some of mine were, as I think back to when I was younger, the day after the last day of school. Remember that day? And the hol- you wake up and there's no school to go to. The holidays have begun. There's no work. There's going to be no homework. And those six weeks that, that I had, certainly in school holidays, seemed like an endless amount of time before you. Or I thought of another day, my, my 40th birthday, with best, best friends. It was good food, good drinks, good fun, good games. It was just good times. It's a standout time for me. I remember that birthday. Or 1st of November, 2009, uh, when Jamie was born and my eldest son, I thought it was one of the most incredible things I'd ever seen. I said to Joe straight away, we have got to do this again. <laughs> she didn't feel quite the same at that moment. But you think of your own days, days like that, and just wonderful days, and you imagine the feeling of those kind of days, and then imagine if it wasn't meant to be just for a day. Just imagine if that feeling was to be yours every day. Imagine that. Those great parties, the start of the holidays, those feelings that go with it, all the joy of friends. Because you get a sense of that, that feeling is something of what the Bible means when it talks about eternal life. It's a life bound up with who God is because he's where all these good things come from. He made it all. That's the rescue that God spoke about. A rescue that could turn our little lives into something eternally good. Take us out of the rubbish bin. Everyone, all of these people were meant to be looking out for this rescue. And then Jesus comes and he gives a sign that looks a little bit like what God did when he was rescuing them from Egypt And when you see that, you're meant to see through it, through just the bread that's there. You're meant to see and say, it's the rescuer. The rescuers come. Lord, please rescue us. But they don't see it. They just want more bread. And they think they can make Jesus a king who will give them what they think they need. But they're flattering themselves way too much. Because they don't know what they really need. And that's why Jesus says in verse 27, don't work for food that spoils. Stop always chasing after the wrong things. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Jesus says the problem we all have, the people back then, you, me, the problem that we all have is that by ourselves, left to ourselves, we never choose God's. We will never choose God and let him be God. We always just want to choose things that don't last. 
We think we know what we really need and how to get it. And sometimes we even do that with religion, with spiritual leaders, with Jesus. I'll make Jesus my king. But he's telling us, look, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. If you're here tonight and you're, you're a Christian already, if you're here and you're a Christian, have you got that idea clear? Has that thought gone deep down into you yet? We are people. We are people who are always in danger of flattering ourselves way too much. Have you got that? You understood that about yourself. The way you think about things, about what you think you need, we're always in danger of flattering ourselves way too much. I am. The Bible says you are as well. It's why at times I think I hear myself, why we hear ourselves saying things like, I feel a little bit let down by God. The way things have worked out, I feel a bit let down. I'm feeling a bit disappointed uh, by the way my Christian life is working out. See, I think I know how it should be working out right now. I think I know how it should be better than this. Those of you who are younger, younger than me, you live in a world, don't you, filled with choices and options, almost, almost from the day you start school. When I started school back in 1975, is that even a year? I mean, that's so ridiculous. 1975 even exists. It's so, for some of you, that's so far back. That's when I started school. A packet of crisps in 1975. I remember this when I was in primary school. They used to sell crisps. They wouldn't do that now. It's so unhealthy. A packet of crisps used to cost five pence. That's how long ago it was. But when I started school back in 1975, school dinners were exactly what you were given. That was it. And you had to eat them. Dinner ladies, their job, it seemed to me, dinner ladies were not to serve you. They were to stand there and make sure you ate what you were given. Lumpy mashed potatoes. I remember hard lumps in the potatoes. They used an ice cream scoop to dollop two onto your plate. Soggy cabbage. At my son's school, my youngest son's school, every day he has three main choices for dinner. And a selection of puddings and fruit every day. And he complains about it. It's never good enough. He particularly hates meat-free Monday. Meat-free Monday. And he's told, choose what you want. Now, don't get me wrong. But in lots of ways, being able to choose, it's a good thing, isn't it? There's lots of reasons why it's good to choose. And it's a really good thing. It's just, it's just that if we've been taught to think that way about everything in life, it's very difficult to switch that kind of thinking off when it comes to Jesus, isn't it? If, if you've been trained to think that way, it's very difficult to switch that off when you walk through the doors of a church building or when you open up the Bible. Having your thinking formed by the way we are, by the advertising that goes on around us, by everything that happens in our world, to believe in the absolute rightness of my ability to choose. Oh, you're so good at choosing. You must choose whatever you want. It's very flattering, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't do flattery. And he says, left to ourselves, what would we choose? We would choose to throw our lives away eternally. That's what we choose. So what does he do? Well, he doesn't do flattery. No, he gives us something better instead. So 
Here's the next thing. You pop the next slide up, Gideon. I think, there we go. He gives us something better instead. He gives us the alarming good news of God. Come, come back with me to this odd story of Jesus crossing the lake. It starts in verse 15. Look, Jesus has, has gone up on a mountain away from the crowd. His disciples go to the lake and they, they head off on a boat for Capernaum. So on the other side. And Jesus is not with them. It's dark and a storm comes. And storms there could be life-threatening. They're having to work hard just to keep the boat going. And you can imagine, you can imagine being in a boat like that. Things have got serious. You're beginning to wonder, will we get to the other side? How's the storm going to work out? And then verse 19, they see him. We're told Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were frightened. You think, you're not kidding. You're in stormy weather and somebody's just walking across the water towards you. It's another miracle. Why did Jesus do this? Why here? In between these, these two accounts of the crowd and Jesus' conversation with them. And it's interesting because the next day, this, this miracle of walking on the water, because the next day when the crowd asked, Rabbi, how did you get here? They, they know he didn't go with the disciples in the boats, but he's got to the other side. Rabbi, how did you get here? He doesn't tell them. He doesn't mention anything about, I, I walked across the lake. He doesn't tell them anything about that. And I think he knows the crowd would fixate on the miracle, not on what the miracle was meant to show you. It would become another opportunity for them to flatter Jesus and flatter themselves as well. But Jesus doesn't do flattery. No, this miracle in the first place, it was, it was a private one, wasn't it? It was just for the disciples. And only later written down for people like us, People who are going to stop and think about it. People who want to see beyond the obvious to what Jesus is trying to tell us here. For people like us to show us the better thing that Jesus is offering. And because this miracle is like a little gospel story. It's a story about who you are and about what your life is like. It's a story about who God is and what he's done. And it's not a flattering story, but it will tell you about something better. So look at it again if you've got it there in front of you. And let me just say as we look at it, look in Jewish thinking, you may know this, a turbulent sea, turbulent, out-of-control sea, often became a metaphor in Jewish writing, a metaphor for kind of chaos and evil, the things that are, are wrong in the world, a way of describing them. The things that are wrong spiritually and morally. And the disorder, threat, death and separation from God, all, all of that eventually brings. And in the Bible, God is the one who's shown providing a rescue through turbulent seas. You think back to Exodus 15, the crossing of the Red Sea, God leading his people through that. If you were to go home tonight and read Isaiah 11, a similar idea is there. And here it's Jesus walking on the water, unhindered, untroubled. What are we meant to see? Now, what is your life? What is your life? What is, what is my life like? Well, the story says to us, doesn't it, morally and spiritually, that you're like a fragile boat on a chaotic sea. 
you're battered and buffeted by the chaos of, of our own bad morality, of the things we do, the things that are wrong, and we're battered and buffeted by the bad morality of, of those around us. You know that. The things you keep doing wrong. Even the things that you hate that are detrimental to you and you keep doing them. And the image of the gospel story, you're helpless and in the dark. Just like these guys on the boat. And you can, it's not that you can't make any choices. You can make some choices at this end of the boat or that end of the boat. Keep rowing or give up. Uh, talk to someone else in the boat or sit in silence. Just like in life, you can choose uh, live here or live there. Pour some activity into this or some activity into that. But what you can't choose, what you cannot choose is a way to avoid the inevitable. That the storm will finally overtake you and you will go down with the ship. It's an alarming story, isn't it? If someone says to you, that is your life. You can't choose to get out of this. You will go down with the ship and there's no way to avoid it. It is an alarming story. But Jesus doesn't do flattery. He gives you something better instead. Now he says the sin that comes from you and comes at you will eventually take you down. But then into the story, someone comes. Someone comes who is able to trample on the chaos of the storm. Someone who can only be God. And he comes with words. Did you notice his words? Words of reassurance and comfort. It is I. Don't be afraid. And he doesn't just stand outside of the boat offering advice. He'll come into the boat and take your life through the storm to the other side. Jesus Christ is not the king you happen to choose. He's the God who comes to rescue. He comes into the moral and spiritual mess of this world, steps into the moral and spiritual mess of your life and says, it is I. Don't be afraid. And I say, but I want a bit more bread. I feel I need an easier life. I think I know much better how this should work. And I have to say to myself, David, don't flatter yourself. You don't know. What I need is what Jesus gives, and that is himself coming into my life and taking me through the mess of my sin. Now, this story, this story, that, this little picture that Jesus acts out, this story, it is a picture, but John will eventually show his reality. So we read on in John's gospel, there will come another dark day when Jesus Christ walked on another journey to trample on this chaos and sin, to put himself in the place where he could save our lives, nailed to a cross, buffeted and battered for the sin that comes to you and comes from you, so that he could bring you to the good place he has planned. Jesus will never flatter us. But he will give us something better instead. 
And when you understand who you are and who he is, and when it works down deep into you, you'll trust him for the journey ahead, knowing one day it will feel a little bit like the disciples. Remember what happened when the, Jesus got into the boat? It says immediately they were on the, side, on the other side, got to where they were going. Knowing one day for us, it will feel like that. It will feel like immediately we've reached the shore. We've come home. He's brought us there. Uh, there's a song I love. I don't think uh, we sing it here very much. Or we might not sing it at all, but it begins this way. Now, why this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that weight of sin now cancelled at the cross? God in Christ will not flatter us, but he will give to those who welcome him something much better instead, himself as Savior. Let's pray for a moment. Uh, let's have a moment of quiet, then I'm going to pray. And then, uh, well, again, we'll just have a, a, a minute or so just to think, just in case there are any questions uh, or comments anyone wants to make for encouragement, uh, we'll give it we'll give a bit. Uh, we'll give it a bit of time for that. If not, um, we'll move on. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for the gracious care your son takes with us. Uh, he comes in great compassion, not just telling us what we feel we want to hear, but telling us what we need to hear. Not flattering, but giving us something much better than that. Giving us himself with gospel truth and grace uh, so that we will be drawn to him and trust him through life's storms. Now, please, would you help us to see beyond obvious things, to see him as he really is, a glorious Savior who loves us and can bring us home. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.